This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 427. And the quote of the day is from the great baseball player Ichiro Suzuki, who said, I feel like I should be more in touch with the nuances of this game. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. This is episode 427, and man, it always blows me away saying those numbers. Uh, anyway, thanks for being here. I do appreciate it. If you dig this podcast, leave a rating and review. That helps it show up higher in the search results, lets more people know about it, helps people get into the community that is Drummer's Resource. And this episode is brought to you by Music Pro Insurance. And Music Pro has been around for 20 years, and they offer inexpensive insurance for musicians. You can insure up to $12,000 worth of gear for about $150 a year, which is is amazing. Check them out by going to musicproinsurance.com. M-U-S-I-C-P-R-O insurance.com. You'll be glad you did. So let's get into this conversation. With, this is with my buddy Shane Terrio. Shane is the music director and guitar player for Hall and & Oates. And he and I met through Brian Dunn, who I've had on the podcast. But also, uh, I, had, I did an episode, episode 419, which was the characteristics of a great drummer. And that episode stems from a conversation that Shane and I had together backstage at his show uh, here at the Oracle Arena in Oakland. And the interview just... It did, not that it didn't go well, but we were distracted. We were sitting backstage and there was people coming in and out. We were sort of in this locker room next to a bath. It was a really weird situation. So he and I decided, Hey, let's do this. Let's do this later. And so we connected again to do this interview. And the reason why I wanted to have Shane on a couple reasons. One, I love him. He's a great dude. Two, he has played with some of the most amazing drummers in the world. When I say the most amazing drummers, I mean like Jim Keltner, Steve Jordan, and you know, Shannon Powell, Zigaboo. I mean, he's played with so many people and I list all the people that he's played with in this episode and the list is absolutely amazing. And we also talk about what he looks for in a drummer and as a guitar player, what he's looking to hear and all those sorts of things. And I think it's important to round out that content to give you a different perspective than just hearing from drummers all the time. So again, I love him. That's really the main reason why I have him on here. He's an amazing guitar player, has a ton of insight, played with the slew of some of the best drummers in the world. And I thought that his insight would be very valuable. And I was right because he dropped some knowledge on here. So without further ado, let's get into it with my man, Shane Terrio. Shane, what's happening, man? We're doing, uh, we're doing round two. Yeah, Nick. How are you, man? I'm Long good. time no see, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for, uh, for everyone listening, Shane and I did, we did a whole uh, interview backstage. We were at the Oracle Center. But it was like we were both sort of distracted. Like there was there was people walking in and out. There was a lot of noise. We were what we were in like the production. We were in That's the production just a practice office. run. Yeah, that was just a rehearsal. Yeah, it was it was a, it was the dress rehearsal for this one. Yeah. So there was people coming in and using the bathroom, and because we were in like a locker room. Yeah, it was it was the production. Uh, I guess their their chill room, which I, I asked the guy, I need a place quiet for an hour. Oh yeah, right there. But of course <laughs> yeah, right that turned to the out to be the case. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> it when the guy go after the guy goes to the bathroom, he comes out and he's like, Oh, are you guys filming? I'm sorry I didn't realize it. Yeah. You're yeah. like, oh yeah, we'll just edit we'll just edit that part out. <laughs> um I wanna I wanna backtrack a little bit sort of how you and I got connected. So I initially I had Brian Dunn on the podcast who you two play in Hall of Notes together. And I've told I told you this before that he's like, Oh man, my guitar player listens to your podcast all the time. And I'm like, Well, why don't you listen to the podcast all the time? I was like, <laughs> You're a drummer. But so I always like I always give him shit about that. But um so but you're I mean, you're a drummer at heart, right? I mean, like you, you started playing drums. I did. I started out on drums. Uh, well, initially I started out on trumpet, but that, you know, I, I did that in school, but then I switched to drums. And one of my best friends at the time, I mean, we were 11, 12, 13 years old. <clears throat> he was in a band and I wanted to be in the band. Of course, they already had a drummer. You know, he was the drummer. So I right. said, well, if you play guitar, you know, and I had been playing guitar a little bit too. I, my uncles all played guitar, and but drums are really my first love. 
So I've always gravitated more towards that. that was thing, it you know? easier for you? Do you think it was easier for you to play guitar or easier for you? Because I played guitar for a little while and it just, it, it was just one of those things, man. It just didn't, it didn't work for me. Like I could my hand, I couldn't get my hands the right way. And like, and I practiced and then I sat down behind the drums and I was like, Oh, okay. This makes a lot of sense. Was it the opposite for you or was it like, you know, it's so long ago. I don't really remember. I don't remember it being awkward playing guitar. I mean, it all sort of happened at the same time. I was okay. playing those things, at, but I was playing drums like, like in the, in the band at school, you know, um, mm-hmm. and guitar was more of a self-taught thing. So I don't, I don't, I don't think one was more challenging than the other. Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate that music has kind of been my thing that's come naturally, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been lucky that way. <clears throat> but, you know, look, I don't want to – I haven't played drums in years. Like, I, you know, my <laughs> friends are they, – they laugh at me when they're, they hear me play a drum set or something at the <laughs> studio. They're like, yeah, it's a good thing you play guitar. It's like, man, I don't ever play anymore. You know? <laughs> right, I, right. I, I was going to ask you, do you, I mean, do you still – do you play at no. all? I have a kit in my studio, but I don't. I don't really play it. No, nah. You gotta. You I'd be gotta... like a step step brothers, you know, where I just get on the kit, start bashing away. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's so <clears throat> funny to to see someone like you who you're such an accomplished guitar player and sit behind a drum kit and it's like starting from scratch. Or like when Michael Jordan went to play baseball, you know, it's like. You could be you could be great at this thing, but then seeing someone go to a different instrument or go do a different thing, it sort of you know makes us remember that we're all human. We're not all great at everything, and it's just a matter of of putting in the work. Like you're not naturally talented at guitar. You're a great guitar player because you put in the work to be a great guitar player, and didn't put in the work to be a great drummer. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of times we look at we look at people and we're just like, oh man, I, I wish I had their talent. And it's like, well, it's, it's skill. It's not, ta- I mean, you have a little bit of talent, but what's your take on like the talent and skill? You mean like the 10,000 hour thing or whatever? Well, just that the is? idea of like, you know, they, I feel like a lot of people just look at someone and they say, oh, you're so talented. But I think, I think talent is something that you're sort of born with, but then you have to develop that talent into a skill. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think you're, you, you have an innate, a, a certain amount of innate talent or a gift or however you want to refer to it. And then it's up to you to develop it and how far you want to take it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I think most people can, could play an instrument or, or take it pretty far. And then there's other people that are, they, they're just anointed with that much more talent or natural gift and, Right. Like I say, it doesn't do any good unless you take it and shape it into something. And that takes a lot of work, mm-hmm. a lot of work, you know. How did you, how did you decide? And this is, I mean, this is a loaded question, but like, how, I mean, did you consciously shape your playing and, and did you, did, were you consciously like, okay, here's where I am and I need to work on these five things and I need to get to this next level? Or was it just sort of like a natural progression of learning? Well, what, what period of of life were you talking about? Like when I was a kid or like when I could play longer? Uh, I mean, like I'm guessing early on you're just a sponge, right? And you're just like, I want to learn anything yeah, that I can possibly learn. completely obsessed. Absolutely, completely obsessed. And it was my whole life for many years. And in a lot of ways, it's still like that. But yeah, And you learning, had mentioned before that you were like, there was no doubt this is what I was – this is what oh, I wanted. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I knew absolutely this was it. Yeah. yeah. And after my aspirations of, you know, originally, you know, kids my age at that time, you, you ever, you wanted to be Eddie Van Halen or whoever it was. And, um, but early on, like, I mean, early on, like 15, maybe I figured out, you know what, I want to be a working professional guitar player, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, a, the rock star thing of being in a band and everybody moving to Hollywood and trying to hit it big. I, I never really got into that. I was like, I want to be a working player. So I worked on all different styles. I worked on sight reading. I, uh, you know, we didn't have YouTube, mm. but had a lot of other resources and, and things like that. But So you were never like, why is that? Like, you were you thinking you had less of a chance of making it that way? No, I just was always interested in a lot of different styles of music. Mm. I just you know, I, I always, it always appealed to me to be, be, uh, I don't know. I don't know why, honestly. <laughs> yeah. 
I just grew up a, around a lot of different styles of music. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was a rocker at heart for a long time. And then I got into jazz really, really hardcore for quite a while, you know, and uh, maybe that's why maybe the jazz studies sort of squashed that, those, uh, (laughs) the other things. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, there's not too many, uh, jazz artists or jazz bands that are selling out, you know, Madison square garden or anything like that. Right. (laughs) I don't think so. But not that, that, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like I, I talk about it a lot on here that I'm, I mean, I know that you listen to the podcast, but you know, I talk about a lot like about changing the narrative of, of what it means to be a successful drummer. Or in this case, a successful musician, it's like, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a rock star to be a successful musician. You know, you don't have to, you, if you want to, if you want to play at, you know, the village Vanguard and, you know, and do it on the weekends, that's cool. Like there's, I don't think well, there's anything wrong with that. Just that right there is hard to do. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I know what you. I know your the point you're trying to make, the uh, or you are making um, success. I mean, what does that mean? It means a lot of things to a lot of different people. I mean, mm-hmm. who's more successful? The the guy who's playing Madison Square Garden, which I did a few months ago, and uh, I know people that have done Madison Square Garden and are miserable on the gig or yeah. complaining about catering or something the per diem or something didn't happen that day and they're bitching about this and then meantime you know say it's a saturday night somewhere in indiana at a little shitty blues club there's a guy sitting in who just waited all week to go in and sit in at this blues jam and he's having the time of his life so yeah who's more successful the guys you know what i mean like yeah i get it success is it enjoying music or is it making a living with it i mean i can tell you having done it all my life it's hard to make the two meet. You have to mm-hmm. get one of them has to give a lot of time. So yeah. I don't know when people say success I and mean, what is it, you know, I don't know. To me, if you're playing an instrument and you're getting paid and you're halfway and enjoying it, right. <laughs> that's success. Cause you know, you could always be digging a ditch or something like that, painting right. a house or right. that's work. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, I uh, and, and, you know, the gig that you have now, I mean, from the outs, you know, from the outside, I'm sure like it, it seems like a good gig, but, and I know that you love that gig, but like, it's, it's still a job. Like there's shit that I'm sure that you don't enjoy about that gig, you know, like there's, there's, there's aspects of every gig that, that you're either going to not enjoy or really, really hate. And I know that you've been in some situations where like you absolutely hated. So you got to sort of take the good with the bad, right? Yeah, I don't know if I've been in too many that I've absolutely hated. I've I've been in some where I liked over others. I've been, right. but you know, the fact is, Nick, is I've been fortunate enough to be in a lot of great situations. You have to look at, you know, over the over time, your uh, your batting average. I mean, right. you know, I've been fortunate to, I've never had to really do a lot of touring gigs that I never wanted to do. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so that's uh it's hard in this day and age. I mean, I don't want to get on this interview and start talking about the depressive parts of the depressing parts of the industry. (laughs) I mean, we all know they're there, you know, it's extreme highs and and sometimes extreme lows in in this thing. It's not like punching a clock and where it's a steady thing. Sometimes you're like, I can't believe, uh, you know, I just got to play a tune with, I don't know, Chubby Checker, the twist, who are in Philadelphia, and Chubby Checker calls me and, hey, what key we're doing the twist? Like, wow, when would that ever happen? Or, right, right. I mean, there's a million of those kind of stories. And then there's like, you know, the, the, the downer things where you work on a record and put your heart and soul into something in the studio, and then it comes out and they don't use any of your tracks. Mm-hmm. A different producer comes in and replaces everything. Right. And that's like a crushing blow. That's what I mean by a low, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You still got paid for the session, but it's never going to see the light of day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, or it gets so shelved and then, oh, we're going to release it later or so, and then it just never comes I, out. Many times. Yeah. To, I guarantee you a lot of the heavy hitters you've had on your show, it's happened to them too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just what happens, you know? The the interesting thing, I think now, we talked about this a little bit when, when we were together last week or two weeks, however long ago, a couple weeks ago. Uh, the idea that more people are going to see music now. There's more people mm-hmm. going to see live music than ever before. And I think that 
for guys like you and Brian, Brian Dunn, who we were talking about earlier, and and session guys, touring guys, that that's great because your work is on the road, you know. But and you and you you guys are live players, and if there's no live gigs, then you know, then what? Well, well, Hollow Notes is a little unique because we're not really. It's not a lot of road gigs. We probably right. only do about 30 shows a year, 35 shows a year. Even this big arena tour that we just did, I say big because it's the most dates they've done in years. That was like 38 dates, which is right. nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well I, I was going to say, but, but, Hall, but, but Daryl and John are historically not touring guys. Right. Well, right. that's what the appeal to this gig for me because I don't like touring and I, I try not to do it as much these mm-hmm. days. So, you know, yeah, we we were, we are out on the road, but that's you're talking about a week or two at a time. You know, like right. we were saying, Daryl doesn't do he won't do more than one show in um, in a row. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the other part of the year is working on related projects. You know, I work with him on his any recording stuff and help him, you know, co-produce in his record. Or we're working on his TV show live from Daryl's house. So that takes up just as much, if not more time than the actual touring mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I didn't mean to steer your question around, but that's no, no, no. I'm not really like out like road dog guys, you know? Right. Well, and, and what I meant by that, I guess more of the idea of like, you guys are live players, right? Whether it be live at Daryl, live from Daryl's house, whether you guys are on the road. And I, the, the fact that more people are going to see live music is encouraging and you know and we talked about this a little bit before about where it's going and it's it's hard to it's hard to guess where it's going but in on one side it's good that more people are going to see live music but on the other side it's making people always be out on the road and i think that recording i think recorded music is suffering from that because they're not guys aren't coming home for two years to work on a record you know, and just not doing anything except it's like, we got to go back out on the road or we got to, you know, we got to play shows, we got to make money and then we'll come back and we'll sort of piece together this record. Like, are you seeing more of that now? Like more of the piecing together well, versus, like, I, don't, oh. I don't see it related to, to live. I mean, I, I think you're right in, in saying that more people are out or, or is basically the live scene is still very healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, people are spending money and going out to gigs and concerts. And I, I would say that's, people I talk to, that's probably accurate. Right. But I don't know if that necessarily is what is affecting the, you know, making records and studio. I think anybody will tell you that it's, uh, you know, the internet is as wonderful as it is, you know, Spotify downloading, that's kind of killed everything because mm-hmm. you have a trickle down effect. You know, you have the artist who doesn't get a, a certain amount of money from a label anymore mm-hmm. because nobody's buy that record. So budgets are slashed. Yep. Uh, drastically and which in turn affects like if say you're in Nashville you're a songwriter you're publishing advance or your publishing deal those have evaporated you don't mm-hmm. have as many guys on that you don't have the demo session players that make a living primarily demoing songs to pitch to labels because nobody's cutting as many songs right the guys that play on the actual records they don't have as much money so mm-hmm. they're it's a whole trickle down effect right. but I don't know if it's necessarily related to the live scene mm-hmm that's just my opinion, you know. But. The interesting thing to me that blows my mind is that the record labels make are making more money now than they've ever made. Ever, really? Wow. Ever. Hmm. And because they're signing all these 360 deals and they're putting people out on the road and they're pl- and and concert tickets used to be $30, now they're 70, 80, 90, 100, 150. Dollars. It and it's like but it's not going it's not going back to the artist, which is I mean we can save that for a whole other hmm a whole nother podcast and we don't want to like, I don't think we want to go down the road of like doom and gloom, but mm. I don't know. Cause I, I I'm on both sides of it because I think that it's encouraging that all these people are going to see live music and, and that, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's changing for the worse or it's just evolving. I don't know. And I don't I'm know the, the answer right, to that. Yeah. I'm not probably the right person to, to right. sit and <laughs> predict things sit like and that. Debate it. We've all seen the horror stories about people getting their equipment stolen out of their van or out of their trailer, but you can avoid that very easily by going to Music Pro Insurance. 
Com. They've been around for nearly 20 years to provide convenient and affordable insurance coverage for professional musicians. And they protect against everything. Theft, even if you leave your vehicle unlocked. Also, fire, hurricane, earthquake, water damage, even if you accidentally break your gear. The best part, you can insure $12,000 of gear for like $150 a year. Tell me that's not worth it. They can also insure higher amounts than that. They can insure classical instruments and things like that. And it's very easy to do. Go to musicproinsurance.com. You can get a quote instantaneously, but it's 150 bucks a year for $12,000 worth of equipment. You can either pay now or pay later. And I'm telling you, you will be kicking yourself. You'll be hearing this message in your head when you go to your trailer and all of your gear is gone. Head over to musicproinsurance.com and get yourself protected. There was an interesting thing when I was asking you about how how you were um, how you were developing. It one of the things that we talked about is how many great drummers that you've played with. So, like, I'm, I rem- you sent me this email, and it's like, okay, Kenny Arnoff, Idris Muhammad, Zig, Jim Keltner, Richie Hayward, Steve Jordan, Steve Smith, Jeff Sipe. Johnny Vodakovich, Harlan Ryland, Stanton Moore, Kirk Covington, Sonny Emery, Brian Blade, Sean Pelton, uh, Toss Panos, J.D. Blair, Tom Breckline. Like, that's a serious, serious list of drummers that you've worked with. And Yeah, uh, it's just the bright – yeah, I've been on some good gigs and been around a while, so you end up meeting and crossing paths with a lot of people. You know? mm-hmm. There's a lot of other people not even on that not list. Not on the list. And from the conversation that you and I had a couple of weeks ago, I actually did another podcast episode about what makes a great drummer. And it was based off some of the, mm. some of the things that you were saying about like, you know, the nuances, the stuff that they're playing, the attitude of the drummer, um, um, you know, being able to, to actually play less notes and, and, uh, and really what's the word I'm looking for? Like accepting the space between the notes and, right. and, and all of that stuff. But the one thing after we talked what and it's, it may be hard to talk about on a podcast was I forget who you were working with and they were talking about the washing machine. Oh, Art Neville. Yeah. Art yeah. was a keyboard player and the founder of the, one of the founders of the meters. Yeah. Art used to, I think I might've said this on another interview. It's a good, it, this is what you were talking about. It was when I went and auditioned for the Neville brothers back in 96, um, it was the strangest audition I'd ever done in my life. And I'm watching, uh, we're, I forget one tune, we, were, we ended up playing for hours. And Art Neville stood up and stopped. And he told the drummer, Willie Green, he goes, stop. You're not playing the right stuff. You know, look, this is your hi-hat, look. And he started actually dancing. And he was moving <laughs> his shoulder. He goes, look at my shoulder. That's your, that should be your, your, your hi-hat. All right, now look, and his other hand, he goes, this is your snare, and he was like, there's your kick, and the drummer was like, it, it was, so, <laughs> I was just complete, I was like, what page is this on, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I remember Art used to talk about two things, a secret groove and a washing machine groove, and the secret groove, I, I don't know what it was, he would try to tell this to Willie Green, it's like a, it's like a secret groove, I can't describe it, and Willie would go, <laughs> Well, how am I going to know how to play it? You got to tell me. But I think what he meant was he and he would illustrate the washing machine groove and he would do like a washing machine going back and forth, mm-hmm. you know, and it, he was talking about the spaces in between the notes, the, the note, the silence or the, you know, it's like the, the pushes that, that you don't, that you don't really play, but you feel it. Mm-hmm. And the, that creates a pulse. And that's what he would talk about. Cause Zig has told the same thing to me a bunch of times. Yeah, it's like washing machine. And when you hear some of that meter stuff or anything, man, with James Brown or any, it doesn't even have to be funk. When something locks in and it just feels good, you'll, if you study it enough, you'll find these spaces in there that create that effect mm-hmm. almost as much, if not more, than the actual notes or, you know, the playing. The, it's the spaces that, right. that create right. that thing, you know? So, yeah, that was, uh, that's what Art was talking about—a washing machine groove. Nice. I, I wish I had the video of you when you were showing me like dancing backstage because it oh, makes yeah. sense. Like it, you know, like that sort of like like that hiccup sort of that right. kind of hiccup washing washing back and forth kind of feeling. Yeah, it's the same thing. You you know, I'm I'm producing this Dr. John record right now, and um, I was in the studio yesterday uh, putting some horn parts down, and you can just watch everybody the way they move. 
the way Mac would move. It's just, it's the same. It's, it's the washing machine group. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's so it's crazy. It's a secret it, group. <laughs> it's a secret. I can't right. tell you. <laughs> I've heard yeah. that uh, this is sort of related and, you know, if it's not, I'll make it work anyway. But I remember uh, one of my early drum instructors was like, I think that people play the way they talk, which I thought was a really interesting mm, way of looking at it. Thinking about like when people say, you know, if they stammer or they say, uh, um, I, um, uh, uh, and they're always putting all these extra words in and filling all this stuff. He said, if they talk like that, they're going to play like that. So I started thinking about like guys who I've played with or other drummers who I know. And, you know, a guy I know talks and he's always like, Hey man, Hey, I got a, and he's always like sort of like high strung. And when I see him play, all he plays is like 16th notes and everything. That makes sense. Yeah, everything's filled, and every every single every single hole has to be filled with some note or a crash or this or that or like, dude. Play yeah, that makes qu- sense. Play, I could see that. Play a quarter note once in a while. <laughs> 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 you know? Or somebody speeds up and slows down when they talk. That could be problematic for a drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From from a guitarist perspective, the difference between playing with someone who's who's constantly overplaying. Maybe not even constantly overplaying, but maybe not leaving as much space as they should be. What's the difference for you? Does does it feel like you're you're constantly like going against the grain, like you're fighting? Oh yeah, oh yeah, a lot. Yeah, I mean, and get, you know, I'm, I will say guitar players can be the worst culprits of that, you know, uh, overplaying and stuff. But yeah, drums sometimes, um, especially like when when you when they try to play like. Um, more of a New Orleans approach or something. It's always real noty. And, and if you listen to um, Herlin Riley or any of these New Orleans cats, man, it's like simplicity. It's so simple. Mm-hmm. You know, even the stuff Zig did on some of those meters things, it's just really not a lot. It, it's so overcomplicate things. But, um, you know, I think it's a tendency if you have a guy who plays live a lot, and that's all he does. And you then you put him into a studio with an artist, a songwriter. I'm not even mm-hmm. talking about New Orleans music anymore. Then you can see, like, uh, that's why guys like Steve Gadd or, I don't know, you don't want to play as much. Right. You no, know, everything gets magnified by 100% in the studio. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a cliched thing, but less is more all the time yeah. in the studio. What's so your approach playing playing live versus in in the studio? Do you feel like you play differently? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say in the studio when I come up with parts, um, it's an interesting question because I usually try to keep distilling down parts. Like I'll come up with a part, and if it's grooving and I get a good vibe from the producer, or the artist, and I know it's working, I'll hone it in. And sometimes I'll just lay out. I'll, I'll distill it even more to where it's just just enough to what you need. And mm-hmm. a lot of times that's way more effective than playing the whole verse or the whole, it's, if it's a syncopated 16th kind of muted little thing or something, sometimes you can chop it in half and it's, it works so much better. It just mm-hmm. speaks more. Yeah. Whereas live, you know, you can go for more stuff. Sure. You can react more or you can – push and pull a little more. I can play aggressive, a little more aggressive. Depends on the artist. Depends Mm -hmm. on the style. And I would, I was going to say, I would imagine that you even play differently, like on the live at Daryl's house stuff versus at the Oracle arena. Like, like you're playing, um, and this, this is just me guessing, but you're probably making more sort of grandiose statements at, at, in a bigger venue than you are playing live at Daryl's. I know like for me as a drummer, you know, all that little like intricate shit that I would play like in a smaller club or something like that when we're in front of, you know, 15 or 20,000 people. I'm like, I can't, I can't play all that stuff. Nobody's going to hear it anyway. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I I mean, on live from Daryl's house, it's essentially, it is a live show. So it's recorded. So, but, but man, it's done so quickly and there's no mm-hmm. rehearsals and I'm lucky if we get three takes at one song, it's usually, it's usually the second take where everybody makes it through right. and, and that's it. That's what you see and that's what's mixed and that's it. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it is basically like you're on stage playing, you know, there's no, 
you're not going to get 20 camera people or who, the whole crew to wait while I redo a guitar solo and punch <laughs> in. It doesn't happen. You can't do it. So right. I think people are surprised talk- when they hear that, aren't they? That, they that are, you guys just like running gun. They don't believe it. Like I've looked up some comments once on, um, I think it was the Kenny Loggins episode and people are like, well, yeah, this is great, but the intro is so much bullshit the way they're, you know, like they never played it before. It's, no, actually we've never played it. Before. <laughs> That's because we've never played it. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> we've never played it before. Like I, I show up like around 10 AM day of shoot and, um, the band shows up and we kind of goof off for a while and then we'll get some monitor levels and we will try to run everything once. Mm-hmm. Try to look at my charts. If they're, you know, the arrangements work out any little bugs. I'm talking seven songs in like an hour, maybe, maybe nice. we probably won't even touch on anything. And then Daryl shows up and he checks his monitor and that's it. There's no rehearsal. No. And so what, so everyone like leading up to it, since you're the MD, you are, what you get with the artist, like if it's Kenny Loggins, right? You get with him and mm-hmm. figure out what tunes you guys are going to play. And then, who, right. and what about all the, because the arrangements are always, they're not always exactly the same as the tune. They're right? not always the same. I mean, generally what happens, well, not generally, this is what always happens. The, the process you, you just described, which that's the most time intensive is getting with the artist, mm-hmm. working, agreeing on the songs. Uh, it's generally six songs, six, seven songs. And it's usually uh, two or three of Daryl's songs and, you know, four of the, the other artists, four or five of their mm-hmm. songs. And that takes a while to work all that out. And then once we get it done, I'll get the keys hammered out and then work on charts and arrangements and, not everybody in the band really reads. I mean, Brian, the drummer does. And I think he, he relies on my charts. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one thing, since we're talking about drum, it's a drum podcast. The, the thing I like about Brian, cause we played with a lot of different artists, um, in a lot of different, you know, heat of the battle moments, right. <laughs> a lot of pre- high pressure situations basically. And sometimes an artist will completely add an extra line or the solo section will go on or something. And Brian, he won't stop. Like some drummers, if they're looking at my charts, if I'm a session leader, they'll just stop and go, wait, 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 wait. Okay. <laughs> bar 41. This is, you know, this is you different. Can't do that. Right. You can't do that. Like the artist and Daryl would just completely flip out and Brian will look at me and he acknowledges that something is different and he'll just make it work. Right. Like he always saves it. You know, that is a great quality that, I wanted to point out, you know, just yeah. not overreact, just figure out a way to make it work. You're keeping time. That's your job. Don't, you know, do a fill or do something, cover it up and smooth it out. Mm-hmm. And we all go home happy, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, I write the, the arrangements and I'll get together with Daryl the day before. And Daryl has all his ideas and we, I send that stuff to the band a couple of days before the, the charts and things, MP3s and everybody does homework on their own, makes little notes mm-hmm. and that's it, man. We get together and, and hammer it out and that's it. Well, like when we were doing, you know, cheap trick was on the show. Um, I don't know if Brian ever told you it, it was so loud. I mean, it was, it was basically the whole band. It was cheap trick without bunny Carlos. Right. And so Brian's playing drums and he's set up a, across the room, and Rick Nielsen's got a Marshall. I have a Marshall. Daryl Hall has a Marshall. I'm talking Marshall stacks. <laughs> and it's so loud. Rick, like this is some old school rock and roll stuff. <laughs> you know, he, he, we're playing, and he looks at me, and then he points to the monitor guy and points to Brian. He goes, I can't hear him. <laughs> I can't hear the drums at all. So, you know, so they – could we all turn down? Yeah, we could, but no. <laughs> turn so the monitor up. Monitor and the monitor. Yeah, it's more volume. That's the solution <laughs> to everything. So <laughs> it's a total so it's, spinal tap. Like this goes to eleven. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's that's how the the show has worked. And um, have there any been? It, have there been any just like like the times where you guys just fell on your face with it? And like, no, or like something wasn't coming together or no, we've always pulled it together. It's yeah. funny, man. I, I did a, an interview with, uh, Sammy Hagar last week, a week before, right after I saw you. Mm-hmm. 
And um, Sammy was talking about when he was on the show, we did a tune called, um, what is it called? Sexy Thing? or so. it's, a, it's a chicken foot song. The band mm-hmm. he has, Chad Smith and Satriani. And we did the song and at, in, on Daryl's house live at Cabo. And we just ran through it once. We didn't even get the intro right. We didn't even finish the whole intro. And Sammy came in singing and Daryl came in singing. And cameras are rolling and Daryl goes, well, that's it. One down. I'm going, no, <laughs> we didn't even play the intro. Yeah, you know, but that ended up being the take. Like things yeah. like that happen where it's not really a train wreck, but it could have been in my could've opinion. Could have been horrible, yeah. I guess, no, I mean, you're dealing with such. the whole song. What's that? <laughs> at least, could have at least played the whole song, you know. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm all for keeping it raw, but let's like, can we start from the beginning together? <laughs> we'll just play the hook and the verse and be done. That's it. Yeah, yeah. man. Come on. <laughs> No, that's all people want to hear anyway, you know. Um, well, I, I guess, I mean, you're dealing with all the people who you're dealing with are all such seasoned pros, you know, like it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like a little nerve wracking, but at the end of the day, you're like, he's got, everyone can do this. You know, they, all these people have played with thousands of different artists and, you know. Oh, our band, man, our band is very tight and very versatile. Yeah. We, we back up a lot of people. Yeah. You know. Daryl has a lot of confidence in us. You know, he's like, we could, we could play with anybody. And yeah, we probably could. Yeah. At least, at least nobody's afraid to try. You yeah. Know? You might as well. Right. What's, I mean, what's the, it's music. What's the worst that can happen? What and everybody's sp- been pretty cool, you know, to show up. I mean, cause you, you got to realize, man, there's no audience in there. So even the seasoned artist, a, a veteran artist that's, that have been on the show, they show up and you're, you're in an unknown you don't have any of your people around, you know, you don't have your band or your guys and you walk into a studio with cameras right in your face and it's like, okay, let's play these songs. Right. And it's completely different interpretations and oftentimes different arrangements mm-hmm. and new arrangements. And um, it can be a little intimidating even for the, the most seasoned icon or mm-hmm. whoever is on that show, you know? And yeah. And I think that, and not that what you guys are doing isn't difficult, but I, it's got to be harder for the people who are coming in because, like, you're used to playing with all these guys. You're play, used to playing with Daryl and and Brian and and everyone else. Where these guys are just walking in, like you said, it's like they may not know any of you guys, and it's like, okay, hi, nice to meet you. Hit record. Yeah, you know that's got to be intimidating, yeah. or at least nerve wracking. Well, you know, so far. There's been no fist fights or any bad words. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> talk, talk to me a little bit about about what it's like to work with with Hall Notes. I mean, they're they're arguably the most successful writing duo of all time, and you know they're they're icons. Like I I grew up listening to them. I don't know if you grew up listening to them, but I'm from Philly. They're from Philly, so I have that connection. But like, there's there's got to be not only just the stories that you hear all the time, but just like the, the history of those guys and all this stuff. Like I was listening to your, your podcast where like they, Daryl, they were going to interview him or they were going to have him audition to be the lead singer of, uh, of, uh, Guns N' Roses. Van Van Halen. Or Van Halen, you know? So like there's all this lineage of, you know, all the things that these guys have done over the years. What are some of the things that you've learned from, from playing with guys like that? Well, they don't, you know, one thing I really like about John and Daryl, I mean, obviously they're legends and they're great performers and great musicians. You know, a lot of people, mm-hmm. Daryl is a great musician. He has a great ear. He has a really uh, wide harmonic palette. I mean, he's, he knows all these hip voicings and he knows voice leading to get a little mm-hmm. technical. And Oates knows the same thing on guitar. I mean, that's what people don't realize. And, and there's a reason those songs sound hip and the chord right. changes a little different and a little bit of Philly and R&B and stuff. So and you guys learned, talked about a little bit about that where he'll put like, he'll throw in like a minor, right? Like yeah. he'll, he'll throw in some like minor voicings or something like that to give it like given a different vibe. And I don't, I'm yeah. getting out of my depth now when we start talking about like guitar minor and major and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But I know that you guys were referencing that when you, when he, when Daryl was on your podcast. I mean, I don't know what, I, what I'd say I learned from them. I mean, I, um, it's more of a vibe thing, man. You know, mm-hmm. once you, um, 
But I will say what I really like about them is they just give us complete freedom. Um, I don't think Daryl's ever hardly ever told me anything. <laughs> really? Uh, not about parts and things. No. Um, Oates has a few times early mm-hmm. on because we, you know, we were playing both guitar and stuff and, you know, maybe you do this and I'll do this or why don't you come up with something. But it's, man, I could count on one hand. Right. I mean, that's in five years and a lot of gigs and a lot of musical situations. So they like having good musicians around and they trust them to do their thing, you know? So that's one thing I really like about the, the gig. And, um, you know, you, you have to, you have to respect that. I mean, you can't go crazy and, you know, you, you right. kisses on my list. People want to hear that guitar so that you can sing it. You know, everybody yeah. can sing songs it's like hotel California guitar solo or something. You don't want to go shredding over it, you know, <laughs> right. your own interpretation. But, um, so I don't know. I, to, I think your question is, what have I learned from? I don't know, man. I, it's more of a vibe, like absorbing. I, I don't know what I would say learn from. I mean, obviously, they're, I look at greatness. I mean, they're just, right. you watch them on stage and the way they click and sing together, and it's just history, you mm-hmm. know, so many years. So yeah. It's amazing how the two of them ended up working together anyway like they're totally two different sort of styles of music right like daryl daryl's more of like the r&b guy and i know he was really into like prog and all that stuff and john oates is mm-hmm. is a total he's like he's basically like a folk singer right right yeah and, john oates is definitely that was more of his baby food it was like mississippi john heard and all those kind of old delta blues guys and folk guys and right and daryl comes more from you know, um, R&B, doo-wop, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of times when we end up playing with people who are either who are older than us or who are more accomplished than us or whatever it be, I think as younger players, it's we, we get into this mindset, and I know I did this when I was younger, that I was, I was more – I was trying to prove myself versus trying to learn from the situation. Like you said, like – the vibe, right? You're, you're seasoned enough now where you're going into the situation when you start working with them, where maybe there's not a lot that they're going to tell you, but that vibe, you're going to sort of, you're going to take notice. You're going to, you're going to sort of put that in the back of your mind while you're, while you're playing with these guys. Is there, this is probably such a hard question to answer, but like, is there, is there a way that you can suggest people be open and, and aware of those situations that that they're in versus like trying to say hey look at all the stuff that i can do and and be more or less egotistical and sort of being open to like what's going on and and absorbing that to have that influence them as they move through their career uh again that's probably a very 100 but i mean if you're a lot of it is psychology you know, and, and um, you want to give the artist what they want. If you're hired as a sideman or you're hired on a session, mm-hmm. that's why session players, yeah, they have a good time. They have good tone, good feel. But you have to learn how to read the artist's mind in a way and suggest things to them in a way that is not intrusive. And that depends on the artist. It totally mm-hmm. depends on the artist. I mean, John, I'm telling you, John and Daryl, you know, a certain way. But somebody like Ricky Lee Jones, who I was in the studio with for a week and did a record with, is completely different. And, you know, the stories are legendary. You can look those up. (laughs) Uh, She's not at all, you know, uh, shy about telling you what she wants. And in in somewhat abstract terms, you know, like when when I sing about the river, I want it to speed up and I want this. And you you have to learn how to interpret an artist. And that just comes with experience. And right. then sometimes you might just get a vibe from a certain artist, artist like Ricky or something where, you know what? She's got her vision. It's not going to do me any good to suggest that I do this. I'm going to go with what she says mm-hmm. and I'll just keep rolling along until the producer. So it's all depends on the situation, man. Right. It's just learning how to interpret uh, an artist's vision. Um, now, sometimes, you know, somebody's going to hire you, especially if you're, you've got a little bit of clout. 
you don't want to go in there and, and ask everything. Well, what do you want me to do? How about this? What about this? That was one of the early lessons I learned doing recording sessions. You know, when mm-hmm. you're green, you want to, you don't, you just ask over and over. Well, what about this? Or I could do this. Or well, let me do this. Or I could give. And then you totally confuse the artist. Usually, All right? And, too many uh, options. It's too many options, and you're 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 trying to do a good job, but what you're doing is making it more confusing. So sometimes. You know, you don't want to do that all the time. You you give them a couple of options and roll with it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a confusing answer, man, because it's a very difficult question. It depends on the the artist, and right. it de- and I would say if you're if you're learning like you're how to develop that, it's just like a life skill, man. It's working with all these different artists, mm-hmm. and everybody's going to have a different personality, and you need to learn how to interpret the personality and react accordingly musically right like like for instance a specific would be working with singers okay if you're a guitar player or drummer even more so a drummer okay i worked with boss skaggs for three years and i saw a lot of drummers come out in and out of that gig and it was because of volume you know two reasons boss wants everybody to sound like well i didn't want to say he wants everybody but jeff picaro was his guy man Mm -hmm. i mean that that was his guy he played on all the hits and he was in his first band and to him, that's in his head. He wants those groove to sound like Jeff, you know. Mm-hmm. And also, he doesn't want it super loud. So that's challenging to come in and make something groove and, and have a um, sort of a governor placed on your volume levels, you know, as a yeah. drummer. Um, so gauging volume, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a guitar player, same thing. Boz would want cer- certain things a certain level, and I knew what I could get away with. Uh, I was working with this artist, Madeline Peru. It was just total jazz, man. We, in Europe, we were headlining things. We heard Hancock and stuff. I'm playing a Fender Deluxe Reverb amp, which is not a big amp, right. on like one, okay? <laughs> and she's turning around and going, you know, could you turn the amp over because, you know, I'm hearing it. And you have to respect that. It's a jazz gig. It was mm-hmm. like Jim Beard on keyboards. And it, it's – depends on the situation so you have to know and once you know you go okay well here's where i can go here's my limits right and work with that right, right you right. know that was a big lesson mm-hmm. yeah i think i rem- show up and just try to take over right you know? i remember steve gad uh when i had him on the podcast he was talking about being in the service business and he was like I'm I'm in the service business and I come in and i give the artists what they want that's why they hire me because i'm not trying to I'm not trying to give them uh, the Steve Gadd agenda. I'm trying to give them whatever they want, and they hire me because I'm Steve Gadd. And yeah, if you can, I will say this to a to a, um, and especially if you you know an MD or something like that, you need to learn to make the artist comfortable. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's not the easiest thing for you because you might have to you have to know do this with discretion. But sometimes it involves telling somebody straight up, like Daryl. You know, I'll say a lot of people, you know, if you're around him, he can be kind of intimidating. Mm-hmm. So everybody just tells him what he wants to hear. You yeah, know, they become maybe, yes men. Maybe so. I'm, I'm just saying a little bit maybe musically, but he'll, he'll appreciate. He may not agree with you and he may shoot it down, but he'll appreciate sometimes if you go, you know, man, that last pass, I, I got to say, it was he wants to hear that, you mm-hmm. know? Not mm-hmm. everything is, is perfect, you know, and an artist needs to hear somebody they trust, give them an honest interpretation of something. That's what makes a great producer. Or, um, and on any scale, even, a, um, even the, uh, that's a hard question, Nick, you're talking about, it's just experience, mm. you know? No, I think but, that you, I think that you answered it really well too. Cause I think, you know, a lot of times we, we want to, we're trying to prove ourselves. And I, I, I think that a lot of times the best way to prove yourself is to, sort of it's like don't be the loudest guy in the room be the quietest listen learn you know read the situation correctly versus like hey man i could do all this stuff you want me to you want me i could play fat you want me to do these things with my stick i could do all this it's like no man we just we just want you to play the tune you know now there's like the extreme um version of that which i've witnessed you know i don't have the the balls or the clout to pull this off but uh somebody like jim keltner who you know jim's been on two of my records and I got to work with him on a few projects and I've seen it where somebody will say, uh, 
you know, it'd be great if you could do some fills going on this, this course, you know. And he's like, yeah, no, nah, I don't think it needs that. <laughs> yeah. Or could you, could we change the tempo up? Nah, this, this is good right here. <laughs> and he's right, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, <laughs> that's a difficult one, man. Right. Because, no. And you were you were saying that that uh, that Keltner is like pretty he's pretty particular right like he's like punched in on like yeah well we did this this record uh, here's another one of the the great records that uh, should have been it was a it was a record for Jewel mm-hmm. and this was like ten or twelve years ago and it was uh, it was a bunch of old Muscle Shoals guys it was Spooner Oldham on keys and um, Ben Keith was producing from the from the um from neil young and uh because ben had produced her first record so i got the call from ben and uh keltner's on drums so we're set up at sunset sound for a week in la and i'm right next to jim keltner i'm like so nervous and he was like really cool and we hit it off and he liked um he liked my rhythm playing you know and we would stay late and like scope things and he taught me a lot about like locking in with tracks and stuff Mm -hmm. and uh and how long ago was this that was like 10, 11 years ago. And yeah. I wish I had a copy of that record, man. Because what happened is the record came out. He, they got a new producer and they, they basically recreated every song Ugh. with a different producer and a different band. And that, that thing had so much vibe. But anyway, um, but yeah, Keller would do weird shit like, okay, no, when I hit this crash, I want to punch in right here on the crash. Or like, there's no... You can tell these cats didn't grow up with Pro Tools, you know. They're just like, I want to punch in on this Tom thing right here. When I go, that second one. And it's it's really quirky. Like, I'm, I really love his playing because he's a first or second, third take guy. That's it. Mm-hmm. He told me he told me Ry Cooter has never let him do more than two or three takes on any of his records. Really? And um, I mean, it's usually like the first or the second take are the best anyway because then you start overanalyzing and – Try, like trying different things and next thing you know you're like playing a different song it was somebody like jim has got so much uh so much vibe you know and i right. remember the producer <laughs> and and ben rest rest his soul he's gone now but i remember him and these guys had played together since the 70s with bob dylan and he would say well jimmy lee's gotta know we ain't making a damn drum record he's gotta finish this shit <laughs> it was just funny watching him like well, I just want to punch in this thing, you know. It's funny, man. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, he's quirky. Quirky would be a better word for Keltner. His playing is, and, and his groove is just fat, man. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Who's 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 your guy? Who like who do you think's the funkiest? Funky, like um, which what kind of funk? New Orleans funk or what? what? Uh, or maybe just the 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 groove, like the groovingest guy. I mean, Keltner's up there, man. Yeah. I, I mean, and Zig, you know, I've done a lot of work with Zig. And uh, I'll tell you another one. We rehearsed. Um, we did this tune. What's that tune? The, the Is it Blue Wind or one of those Jeff Beck tunes? What's that tune? Uh, I used to play that tune. You know that tune, right? I know exactly what song you're talking yeah. about. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, I used to play that in a trio. For years, we did I that with Zig. We rehearsed it with Zig. Man, you should have heard Zigaboo play that tune. Really? I'm talking like across all the bar line kind of shit, like all that. You know, it was like it was badass. And we rehearsed for this gig, and um, and we were doing the set list that night. And I said, Zig, what about that Jeff Beck tune? He goes, Man. Yeah, I don't want to do that. It's like showing off. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> shit. But we didn't do it. But somewhere uh, I have a recording of it. Yeah. Yeah, Zig's up there too, man. I mean, you know, and um, I don't know. There's so many, Nick. There's so many great drummers. And I am I like reading, you know, drum magazines. I get like totally inspired by John. I mean, living in New York most of the time now, I mm-hmm. hear so many great cats, man. Yeah. You know. I love I love hearing all these stories because I think it's a different perspective of someone who either has like gone in to take a lesson with these people or just met them or talked to them because I think that it's whether whether people realize it or not if if me and another drummer sit down there's sort of this like agenda right and it's like we somehow it has to be 
in this sort of drum box. But for right. you as a guitar player talking to a drummer, I think that there's that conversation goes differently, but you could still pull out all of these all of these great things and then you get to see them in their natural element like there's not a lot of times other drummers or drummers get to see other drummers recording records or or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. You're like our in, you're like our inside guy. <laughs> yeah, Blades great. Um yeah, I mean, it was funny man. I did this uh, this gig once with it was um, Johnny Vidakovich and Idris Muhammad, two drummers. And that was so much fun. And after the gig, we were in the dressing room and Idris, he had on like these crazy, like, I guess they were women's red, big old red sunglasses, like from, the, <laughs> you know, Dollar General or something like big old huge glass. And he put, he wouldn't, he lost his glasses. So we had to hold the gig up till he could find the glasses. Then we did the gig. And then after, <laughs> and there was sunglasses. Then after, he was the nicest cat. And then after the gig, we were in the dressing room and, and you know, everybody's high five and stuff. And, and Idris goes, man, I can't wait to go back to my room, draw me up a nice bubble bath, roll me up a weed and think about all this music we just made. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing. His name was Leo Morris and he grew up on the same street as the Neville brothers. And he's the one that introduced Aaron Neville to his wife, Miss Joelle, who passed away probably ten years ago. Oh, they really? Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. He was a he's a funky drummer, man. Idris, uh, I would always e- we would email back and forth about having him on the podcast, and oh, oh. At which obviously you know we we didn't get to make it happen. But he uh, he would always want to do it at three o'clock in the morning. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, can we do it any other time? He'd be like, how about 3 a.m. next Tuesday? <laughs> oh, I'm man. like, that, I'm like, is there any time earlier in the day? And he'd be like, how about Wednesday at 3 a.m.? <laughs> I remember talking to Zig about um, we were working on Daryl's record. We were trying to get that that Alan Toussaint, you know, C Saint sound that his studios in New Orleans, like that 70s kind of sound, that real mm-hmm. dead sound. And I said, Zig, man, I was trying to get these drum sounds the other day. How'd you, how'd you do those? And he goes, man, we used to just put like uh, maxi pads all over the drums. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that shit would probably work great. That's probably you know? what it is. And I'm, of course, you know, the room was like dead as could be, you know, carpet, shag carpet all over the walls. Right, and probably right. the heads hadn't been changed in years. But man, that's a sound, man. Yep. I love the sound of like dead drums, you know. But that's yeah. like the, uh, like Gad's drums on, uh, on the Chick Corea record. Um, which one is it? Uh, I forget what the record is, but we went to see him at, uh, at the blue note, in New York. And mm. Gad had like, everything was taped. He had tape all underneath of his symbol. And it was just like, <clears throat> you know, it was yeah. just total. Everything is just dead, just dead, dead, you know, and watching him. Like, I feel like if I played on that kid, it, I like, I would feel like I'm playing with like concrete on my hands. And watching him yeah. play it, though, man, it's just like it's a total. Listening to him play it and watching a video of him play it is two is one thing, but like si- I was sitting directly behind it. Like if I put my hand out, I would have pushed him over. That's how close I was. Wow. And just watching him play, it's such it's so amazing. But yeah, just like deader than deader than dead. No tone, you know. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting because drums. I think it's a. It's, you can hear the personality of a drummer come through because of dynamics and the way they hit a drum and the sticks and things. And um, my, one of my solo records I did, I had Keltner and Zig were on the record, and I used the same studio. And in fact, a lot of it was the same drums. And Keltner would bring in his Black Beauty or his cymbals or whatever, and Zig right. would bring a snare. But they basically use the same kit, and it's completely different. It mm-hmm. sounds completely different. Really? Now, Zig, hits, Zig hits really hard, man. And he uses traditional grip, and he whacks the shit out of a snare. You know, he doesn't seem like a guy who would hit that hard. It's pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, where did you Where did you record that record in New Orleans or uh, all over the place? But those two drummers I did in L.A. at a place called uh, what is that place? Um, it's an engineer named Johnny Lee Shell, and Johnny Lee is a guitar player also who used to work with Bonnie Raid and BB King. Great oh guy, and he has a studio. Uh, ultrasound, ultra, ultra tone, oh, okay. ultra tone, and it's in Studio City. And um, 
a lot of people recorded there, like uh, Taj Mahal and Little Feet did some stuff. It's just a little little studio behind his house. But right. man, Tony Bronigal, you know him? He, he's I know a that name. Guy. What a great drummer. And Tony left his kit there and like Keltner records there and Tony records there and they tweak stuff and just leave it. And it's like the best sounding shit ever because huh. they, they just come in and out and like do it and yeah, do it. Yeah, they just leave their best stuff there and like and it just it just sounds great. So yeah, that's where I did it. Speaking of little studios, it was when I lived in Hoboken, there was a studio there that I didn't even realize that was there until after I left. And Hoboken is like I mean, you've you've been to Hoboken before, right? Have you ever been there? I don't think I ever have. I've it's, seen it. Dude, it's, it's tiny. It's one yeah. square mile. And there was there's a studio there that like everyone is recorded there, like Neil Young, Dave Matthews Band, all these other people. Wow. And I'm like, how did I live in this town for seven years and never even knew that this studio was was here? And yeah. all these great records came out of it. And I'm I don't know. I'm just pissed that I never got to never got to find out about it. But the, there's always these little gems and all these you know, all these neighborhoods or wherever. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, let's see, who's the guy, all the, the uh, Verve or Blue Note stuff, the Rudy Van Gelder studio in New Jersey. It was mm-hmm. like a house or something. Yep. Uh, all that. Yep. Daniel Lanois recorded the Neville Brothers and Bob Dylan, Oh Mercy. That was before he had his studio, Kingsway. That, that was done in a house, like in a neighborhood. There is a place in New Jersey that's for sale right now that's a studio. And I think like the Stones recorded there. And all these other people, and it's like it's just some unassuming like it's a house. It's just yeah. I'm wondering if maybe that's the same place. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, this place, this place is in uh oh Rudy Van Gelder. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Yeah, I don't know where it is. Um, I wanted to ask you. I know we're sort of jumping around a little bit, but one of the things that you had talked about uh, about how your sort of playing and the trajectory trajectory of your playing changed. And you said things got things sort of opened up for you when you were playing with the Neville brothers, right? Uh, yeah. I might open up a lot of doors. Yeah. And also, um, career wise. Yeah. It opened up a lot of doors and then my rhythm playing got a lot tighter, obviously. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you about. What was the, what was the difference? Was it the vibe or was it something that someone consciously told you? It was like, Hey man, Oh man, it was all, it was all of that. All stuff. the above. Yeah. They had no qualms about telling you what to play, you know, definitely yeah. like right in your face. I mean, cool, but you know, mm-hmm. like for instance, I remember this was a big lesson, man. It was um, one of my first weeks with the band and we were doing, we would close the gig with this version of uh, uh, One Love into People Get Ready, mm-hmm. right? Medley. And I had to kick off One Love. It was like the skank guitar, reggae, it was like complete cold with like hi-hat and guitar and I'm kicking off this huge band and it just kind of sucked. You know what I mean? It was okay. Who was playing drums? Willie Green. Okay. And it was okay. It wasn't, you know, bad, but after the gig, Willie's like, man, you know, bro, you gotta, you gotta listen to the, you gotta listen to the record, man. It's, it's the tempo's off and the feel, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I know I'm going to get it together. I'm like 24. I was going to say you were young. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so Charles Neville, you know, he goes, Shane Terrio, yeah, motherfucker songs is too, too slow. I say, yeah, I'm sorry, man. I'm going to get it. All right. Listen to that shit. All right. So Cyril Neville. Yeah, bro. It's killer. Just, you know, everybody's got their thing. Right. And then Art, Art Neville, he comes up, he goes, Hey, bro. So, yeah, I already could listen, bro. One love. I said, I know, man, Aaron, and everybody told me, man, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's going to be on, believe me, next year. He goes, No, no, no. Don't change that shit. Play it exactly like that. That's how I've been wanting to hear it. So, I'm like, <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm going, Okay. Now, what do yeah, I do? What do you go with? You know, it's like, so uh, I don't remember how I ended up doing it, but. Um, <laughs> It's stuff like that, you know, just getting right. confidence together and, and playing at the same time. There's so many of those kind of stories. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you have to get with these older cats and you have to get some of that tough love. Like, I, I think I talked to you before, like, my big, I think the big thing that I learned in my career or a lot of the lessons that I learned with my career, <clears throat> I was playing with, uh, with the DeFrancesco brothers and, like, just and Glenn Farrakone, who has been drum, who's been playing drums for those guys for years, and they're you know they came from a lineage of of organ players and and Johnny DeFrancesco is a guitar player, and they would give me all this tough love and same thing. I was like twenty three, right. twenty four, and they're like, 
you know, we I we'd play something. I'd come off stage and they're like, dude, like that shuffle's not happening or whatever or like what the fuck are you playing? Like why are you playing all right. the notes or or whatever? And you know, one night we were in the studio and I left and they called me the next day and they were like, are you are you okay with like what happened last night? You know, because they were pretty they weren't they weren't rough on me, but they were tough on me. And, yeah. you know, and it's like, it, I feel, I don't need someone all the time being like, oh man, everything sounds great. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, it's like, that doesn't do anything. I need some, no, it's not, I want yeah, some you need, yeah, you need to get better. You need to be thrown into the fire a little bit. And mm-hmm. the drum chair is the most volatile. It's the, the Marines front line of the, the band. <laughs> right. If you get a shitty drummer, the whole band sounds terrible, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. it's, um, Yeah. You're right. It's good to learn from experience. I, I don't know how many of those opportunities are around these days, you know, with older, older cats, but mm. I'm sure there are. You know? Yeah. I mean, even if it's guys who have just been playing longer, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was always the the, uh, the youngest person in any musical situation. And I still am, believe it or not, I'm still the youngest person to all the Oh no, Brian Dunn's older than me by like two weeks. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Keeping <laughs> the streak alive. Keeping the streak alive, yeah. When I was in the Noble Brothers, I was the youngest by far. Yeah. And uh, Willie Green, there was a lighting guy um, named Cyril Jr. He was Cyril Neville's son, and we were the same age, and we were buddies, and everybody else was at least 15, 20 years older than us. And Willie used to call us the 20-somethings. <laughs> and, uh, and the last time I talked to him, Cyril's like, man, we got kicked out the 20-somethings a while back in the 30-something <laughs> club, you know. But yeah, if you're if you're um, lucky to be around those those kind of cats, man, there's. How the hell did you get that gig at twenty four? Well, there was a there was a a friend of mine and a guitar great guitar player named Eric Eric Struthers, mm-hmm. and Eric was in the band, and um, yeah, some personal things came up for him. Um, some kind of tragic things actually, and he had to leave the band. He had been thinking about leaving anyway. But in the prior year, he had hired me. He was producing. He was trying to get more into producing. And he had hired me to play on all these sessions. So we got to be friends. And he actually financed some of my early um, instrumental stuff. And uh-huh. he liked my guitar playing. And he knew I was from down in this area. And I was in Nashville at the time. And when the opportunity came up, he, he put my name in the hat. And that's how that's how I got the, the gig. Huh. You know? It's a good gig to get a 24. <laughs> yeah, I might be twenty five or something. But yeah, it was it was it was definitely a great gig. Yeah. And yeah. met a lot of people through that gig. Nice. So. Well my man, I'm gonna uh I'm gonna let you go, but first I wanna thank All you right. for taking the time to chat twice. Uh, yeah, bro. Sure. And for I want to publicly thank you for the the hospitality at the at the show, man. My wife and I had a had a fantastic time, so I always appreciate that. Yeah. And uh I don't know, man. That's it. You can come back anytime. We can talk drums and guitar, and we'll do it to it. Sounds good, Nick. Good deal, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. That's my main Shane Terrio. Be sure to check him out, and also be sure to check out his podcast called The Riff Raff, and you can just go to shaneterrio.com. That's T-H-E-R-I-O-T, shaneterrio.com, and he talks to, it's a music podcast, so he talks uh, to guitar players, drummers, you know, bass player. He talks to everyone, and it is all people who he's played with, and the cool thing about it is they sit down, they play, they go over tunes, and he's had some amazing guests like... Daryl Hall, John Oates, he's had Johnny Vodakovich, he's had George Porter Jr. from The Meters, Mike Stern, Oz Noy, Sammy Hagar. He has had some amazing guests on there, so be sure to check it out. You can just do that. Go to his website, Shane Terrio, T-H-E-R-I-O-T.com, or just search The Riff Raff, R-I-F-F-R-A-F-F, on you know iTunes, Stitcher, and all that good stuff. Hope you dug it, and until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Thank you.